How many of you got away for spring break recently? See a few hands. Our family did. Uh, my wife Amy and I and our seventh grader and our tenth grader went out to Colorado. And uh, we managed to get in some skiing on the last of that little thin crust of snow left there at Steamboat Springs. It was a great time. Wonderful just to unplug and reconnect as a family. Uh, but one of the best things about this particular visit was the chance to also see my cousins, who I, I frankly had not seen in I don't know how many years. We went out for dinner one evening to this marvelous Mexican restaurant in Steamboat. Uh, see me afterwards for recommendations. And we, um, we just, we talked and we told stories and we reminisced and we, we just marveled at how wild the ride had been for all of us since we'd seen each other last, raising kids and moving from here to there and that sort of thing. And as we were talking, we began to wonder, gosh, when was it that we actually did see each other last? And then it simultaneously hit us when it had been. And this somewhat uncomfortable silence settled over the table because it had been at a funeral that we last were together. My cousin's parents, whom I knew as Aunt Noni and Uncle Hig, don't you love family names? <laughs> Aunt Noni and Uncle Hig were just remarkable people. I know everybody says that about family members, but these, really, trust me, these were really colorful, interesting, fun people. And because they were uh, people adventuresome in spirit and had the financial resources to do, I mean, they had the kind of life of which dreams are made and songs get written. I mean, it was just an epic kind of life. They traveled to the far reaches of the world together. They, um, they went adventuring through the wilderness. They were hunters and fishers and explore, explorers. And they just, I mean, their family photographs were just mind-blowingly spectacular and diverse and interesting. And, and they had raised this beautiful set of four girls. Actually, they were in the process of raising them uh, at this particular time. Four lovely girls uh, they had just adopted a brand new baby boy. They'd given up on being able to produce a boy the other, any other way. So they'd adopted a little boy, much younger than the others, and they were just thrilled about this. My uncle had just been made the president of Learjet Corporation, Uncle Highead. And, and so they had access to the planes, and they could fly all, all over the place. I mean, it was an amazing life they had, just an amazing life. And they were about uh, to throw a party, to celebrate the, the arrival of the new boy, of the new child. And family members were coming in from various places, and my Uncle Hig was coming back from the airport, and uh, he pulled up at a, at a stop light, and then the light changed, and he pulled out into traffic, and he was hit by a car traveling 90 miles per hour, driven by bank robbers, escaping a crime, and it killed him instantly. My aunt never got over it in this life. Never. It put a wall of silence between her and God. And then she was diagnosed with cancer herself, breast cancer. 
And she fought it. Oh, man, did she fight it. But it beat her. And took her life at exactly the age I am now. You can understand why the silence was somewhat uncomfortable and awkward at the table as we realized it had been at her funeral we'd been together last. And, and, and you know from your own experience the kind of dark silence that can settle over you when you really face the unstoppable, unforgiving reality of death itself. There are always in the crowd around us at any given moment people who are living in that place right now. There are people here today who are mourning, parents mourning that baby that never got the chance to get born because it died before it happened. There, there are the people who, who think fondly of that particular friend or family member who was so suddenly ripped out of their life through some tragic accident or as a result of a terminal illness. There, there, there are those people that we see on the pages of our newspaper and on the television screens these days who suddenly lost a precious loved one in the terrible violence in our cities, in Florida, in other parts of the world at this particular time. There are those individuals who know because they've just gotten a tough doctor's diagnosis that, that, that the grim reaper is heading their way even now. There are those of us who know he won't pass us by forever. I, got a, I was introduced to him briefly last summer, and I know he's coming back for me one day. At one level or another, all of us understand something of the dark silence that falls upon us with the reality of death. Easter begins there. The Bible says that from Friday afternoon, Good Friday of Holy Week, at around 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, to early Sunday morning, there was this terribly dark sort of silence. Mary, Peter, John, Thomas, all the other people we meet in the John uh, account of, of Easter, all of them could feel the anguish of that. And as you know from your own personal experience, the, the amount of pain and loss and heartache you know in the face of death is in direct proportion to the amount of love and joy and life you experienced before that. The greater the person's life, the harder the loss. The greater our connection with them, the greater the loss. And these disciples had had an amazing connection with Jesus. Jesus had been a man of such extraordinary, catalytic vision, character and power that had altered the lives of these disciples. Jesus had introduced them to the God they'd always wished really existed, 
Not the God that the religious leaders of the time were talking about, but a God of such extraordinary quality that they just wanted to know him. Jesus had introduced them to the life they had always wanted. This God was so glorious, his love was so generous, that, that, they, that it had become a grand obsession for them to know this God Jesus knew. They had let, let jobs go. They had left behind hometowns. They had traveled with Jesus anywhere, desperate to know more of, of this Father he spoke of. And the more that he described the kingdom of his father, the more he described this way of doing life, of living relationships, the more they realized, my gosh, that's, that's what is needed. I mean, if, if we could just live this way, it would change our family life, it would change our individual life, it would alter the workplace, it could alter our society. This kingdom vision could change the world. And so they were all in with him. They had become his disciples, his learners. And for a season, Jesus appeared to them to have supernatural power to actually bring that kingdom into being. I mean, they had seen amazing things, miraculous things. They had seen evil running from him. They had seen disease uh, chased away by him. They had seen broken people, broken relationships restored, health given in the most marvelous kind of way. Jesus said in all kinds of various phraseologies, let me into your life. It was the constant invitation of Jesus. Let me into your life, for behold, I will make everything new. I'll give you a fresh start. I'll give you a new beginning. I'll give you the life you've always wanted. The life of the kingdom. It was the kind of life and the kind of love of which dreams are made and songs are written. And then the darkness came and the music died. like it did for that dreamy, <laughs> music-filled life that was my aunt and uncles and their kids. In this case, the authorities arrested Jesus on Maundy Thursday night. They tried him in the middle of the night as a danger to religion, ironic, a danger to religion and the political authorities on that Friday morning agreed a danger to politics as well. And then they ordered that he be flayed 39 times. His body was ripped to ribbons, uh, just torn to shreds. And then they nailed him up on a cross to die like he was some kind of a, a dead butterfly in a trophy case. They nailed him up there to die between two thieves. And the Bible says that as Jesus died, darkness came over the whole land. The awful silence of love lost, of hope crushed, of dreams destroyed, settled upon the whole world that 
Good Friday and through the next Saturday and into that Sunday, three days, the cold, dark silence of death reigned. Earlier that week, Jesus had said something puzzling. He, he was being interviewed, um, and, and he'd said something kind of puzzling. Not everybody understood what he was talking about. Now, when I say he was being interviewed, I need to really set the, te- the scene a bit in contemporary terms for us. Jesus was the big show. Palm Sunday came, and a lot of people were convinced that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah. He was the one who was going to win it all back for Israel against the Romans. To put it even in more uh, contemporary commercial terms, his triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was the most watched, most highly rated show in all of Israel. Okay? Everybody was tuning in. There were a million people there for the Passover in Jerusalem. Everybody was out in the streets wanting to catch a glimpse of him. The producers of the big religious show and of Israel's life, however, had had much more doubt about this guy. And they had decided that he really was a loser and that he really needed to go. Um, he, He was a threat to them in a variety of different ways, but they were also very sorely impressed that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah because he did not look the part. All of our Hollywood images of Jesus aside, he didn't look the part of the kind of Messiah people were expecting. In fact, the Bible says in one of the prophecies about him, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was not the George Clooney Jesus. He was not the Brad Pitt Jesus. Okay? He wasn't even the Jesus you see in the Passion of the Christ. He wasn't, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. He wore working people's clothes. He was a workman. He dressed like that. Rather than in the costume, you'd see it dancing with the stars or You know, he just didn't look like some kind of a celebrity, an emissary from God of all people. And he talked wrong. He had this sort of twangy, northern Galilee accent. Not the kind of, you know, urbane, sort of madman style, you know, tone that you would expect of the Messiah. Sophisticated, cool. He just didn't look the part of a superstar. And so, they decided he had to get the hook. They'd put him up, he'd been on the show long enough, they needed to get him off now, uh, for these reasons and more. He looked like and sounded like one of those weak acts on The Voice, or on Idol, or on Dancing with the Stars, and they plotted and they planned to rid themselves of him altogether, and they were just about to do it, but they couldn't do it quite yet, because at the time that in the middle of the week, there was still too much of a market share. There was still too many in the audience watching him. And so they gave him one last chance. And they asked him this question in front of the whole audience. And I quote, What miraculous sign can you show us 
to prove your authority. What's your act? What can you do to prove you're who you say you are? You say you're the son of God. You say you can forgive sins. You say you've come to usher in a new kingdom. <laughs> prove it. What are you going to do? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, they thought he was talking about a church building project. But you know he was talking about his resurrection. And not just his resurrection. He was talking about yours and mine too. Earlier on, Jesus had said to his disciples, I am the resurrection and the life. I hold in myself the very power of life and life renewed. And if you believe in me, if you will put your trust in me, even though you die, even though the accident at the intersection takes you, even though the terminal illness gets you, even though the violent crime happens to you, even though you die of natural, even though you die, yet shall you live. Yet shall I bring you to new life with me, said Jesus. It was a pretty big claim. It was a, it was a, a remarkable claim. This idea that though everything in our bodies goes dark and silent, He's going to somehow have the power to restore the glorious song of life in us. It was a big, big kind of promise. Hard to believe. Not just for the, for the religious people to believe. It was hard for his disciples to believe, honestly. I mean, we can tell that. We read, read John chapter 20, the early part, and you get it. I mean, these people were not like, you know, Pollyanna, pietists. I mean, they found it hard to believe. Peter and John didn't believe it. They heard the body was gone. They went running to the tomb. They, they, they just figured it had been stolen, but they just needed to verify that. But when they walked in, there was something about the grave clothes, the Bible says. They, grave clothes were still there. The Bible makes it clear. They were still wrapped up. The headband, the turban that was wrapped around the head was just a little space away from where the rest of the clothes did. It looked like the body had dematerialized. And passed right through the grave clothes. And the scriptures say, when they saw it, they believed. Mary didn't believe it. <laughs> she wanted to. Jesus had been everything to her. It was not until as she walked through the garden in her grief and met what she thought was the gardener and he spoke her name, Mary and knew the unmistakable sound of the one who loved her, that she believed he was indeed risen from the dead. The disciples, the other disciples, they didn't believe. They didn't know what to make of Peter and John and Mary and what they were saying. I mean, it was crazy what they were saying. In fact, when Jesus appeared to them, read on in John chapter 20, 
they just figured it must be an imposter until they looked closely and they saw the wounds in his hands and the, the gash of the spear in his side and they believed. And then Thomas, the patron saint of all of us skeptics, hey, he went one further step. He said, I'm not going to believe it. I don't care what any of you people say. I don't care what any of you saw. Until I put my fingers in the wounds, I'm not buying it. And then he did. He put his hand in the wounds and saw it was not an illusion. And he believed. I struggled to believe it myself. I was an atheist for years. I couldn't buy this whole Easter thing. And then it began to pile up on me. The grave clothes were undisturbed. All of these different people had had an experience that convinced them that they'd seen it even down to touching him. 500 people were told elsewhere in the scripture over a period of weeks had the same experience when they were doing different kinds of things, you know, not all sort of focused on Jesus. They were interrupted by Jesus appearing to them. And what made it more amazing to me was that most of those people went to bloody, awful, torturous death rather than deny that they had met the risen Christ. And I came to believe. John quotes the words of Jesus. And Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you blessed like that? Are you one of those people he was talking about here? Who even though you haven't touched, you haven't seen the wounds, you haven't talked personally with somebody who met the physical risen Christ, have believed nonetheless. My friend Jack really wanted to be in that number. Um, Jack was a a remarkable guy in the carpentry business. Uh, he was a, been a working class kind of guy, real rough cut, but an earnest man, and he came to church, and he was faithfully seeking out Jesus. And then the cancer came to him. And when it got really bad, and you have to trust me, it got bad. It got really bad at the end. The whole body, his whole body began to fall apart on him. And it was so hard for him at that moment to keep believing, to keep trusting. He, and he confessed to me, he talked to me in a conversation we had at Loyola Hospital. He said, I just, I'm just afraid of what might be out there, of what is to come for me. I want to believe, but I just, I have these terrible doubts. And I said to him, Jack, you, you just, you don't need to be as afraid. I understand why you're afraid. And, and he was especially afraid because he thought, God's not going to take me if I still have these lingering doubts. I've got to have absolute certainty. I said, no, Jack, it's not like that. You just stretch out a trembling hand of faith toward Jesus. You just put it out there. He'll close the distance. And he will take you in his strong hand. 
and he will carry you home. And Jack did that. He stretched out his hand. He died very soon thereafter. And I did his funeral. It was right here. And as I was preparing for that service, I started thinking back to all of the conversations and encounters I'd had with Jack. He was a great guy. Played poker, built homes for people, just fun, delightful, full of life guy. Kind of guy that would have been a disciple of Jesus in the first century and, and really sought to be in this century. And I remember one particular email he sent me. It had a YouTube video clip in it. It was the first time that I'd seen this particular video clip, though it went viral. It was the one that featured a segment of that program, Britain's Got Talent. And it's the one in which a somewhat plump, frumpish housemaid named Susan Boyle is asked, what are you going to sing for us? Susan responds, I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables. And Simon Cowell, one of the judges, eyes rolls in skepticism like, um, like the Pharisees before the claims of Jesus. And the other judges aren't much better. They just restrain their smirks and they're imagining, obviously, anticipating how much of a bomb this very plain woman is going to be trying to sing this unbelievably difficult song. And then as the music strikes up, as unlikely a star as a carpenter from Galilee, Susan Boyle steps forward and does what it turns out she can do. Her voice floats over the notes like hot caramel melting over mounds of ice cream. Her, her song rises and dips like a hang glider soaring the cliffs of Hawaii on a bright, sunny day. Her voice crashes like the Niagara Falls and then explodes up again in a spray that glistens like the 4th of July fireworks. And the room is pandemonium. The, the, the face of Simon Cowell is just aghast. His voice, his face drops as he, as he sees this. And a female judge next to him begins to cry. And, and the judge next to her, who turns out to be Piers Morgan, uh, he just begins to laugh uncontrollably with pleasure as the audience erupts to its feet, rise their feet in wild cheering, and people backstage are, you know, high-fiving it. As everybody realizes, they've all been surprisingly ushered into the presence of glory. So here's a question for you this Easter. Here's the one to take with you. Is it crazy to dream a dream of a love that never dies, of a love so great, so powerful, that even if death comes, it can restore the beloved. Is that crazy? I think not. 
Because Easter, what happened, what happened in history was just the warm-up act for something even more amazing that's coming. There's going to come a day when you and my aunt and uncle and my cousins and Jack and Thomas and even Simon Cowell are going to be ushered to our seats in the great hall. We'll come in all kinds of conditions. We'll find ourselves in the great hall, the Bible says, and Jesus will suddenly be there at center stage. And Jesus will suddenly do before us, I believe just stretched out the whole span of salvation history, what only Jesus can do. And as he begins to sing, the melody of his grace will fill the heavens. And the, the, the glory of his life and his love and his vision will, will dip and soar like that hang glider we described. And suddenly the, the drama of what he did sacrificially to give his life for us on the cross will crash in upon us and hit us with full force. And then an exploding joy will wash over us like the 4th of July as the resurrection in all of its power becomes real. And we, we will find ourselves surrounded by the cheers of heaven, all of creation, singing to his glory, even if we have been determined to be our own Savior, our own God in this life here. It will be an overwhelming moment. In fact, it may be an awful moment. It will certainly be an awkward moment when we see it's all true. But if we have been among those who with trembling hand reached out to take his hand that he outstretched to us in this life, it is going to be a glorious moment. And our jaws will drop in awestruck recognition. And tears will well up in our eyes and in the eyes of the beautiful angels themselves. And our bellies and our chests will be overflooded with the laughter of God's grace and the beauty of his goodness and the wonder of his love as the resurrection and the life himself and the light of the world and the eternal song shows himself to us in all of his glory. And we will in that moment know that God was vastly greater than we had estimated based on initial appearances in this life. We will know then with absolute certainty that his purposes were far more magnificently written than we were able to read as we studied the jumbled notes on this side of life's page. We will realize that though we were battered and bruised to be sure at times, we were always always safe if we were in his hands. This is the good news I pray for my aunt and uncle, for my friend Jack, for my cousins, for every one of us who has ever feared 
what is to come. Do not be afraid, says Jesus. It's the most continuous refrain of the song of the gospel from the lips of Jesus or of his angels. Do not be afraid. For at the heart of this universe is not the cold, dark silence we fear. At the core of the creation is the hallelujah-inspiring Lord of life, the final winner over all skepticism, sin, and death, and Easter shows him to us. And you are invited to come follow him with us. For you see, John points out that Easter isn't the end. It's just a new beginning. In his last words in chapter 20, he reminds us, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. You just have to be one of those disciples to know it, to see all that he can do. Come be one of those disciples, John is saying. He did many more things which are not recorded in this book, but these, this much, is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, believing, you may have life beyond your dreams to inspire your song. You may have life beginning today. Would you pray with me? Lord, wherever we find ourselves in that great spectrum from unbeliever to skeptic to committed follower, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would take hold of us and lead us on to that glorious, abundant life possible here and now and that staggering, glorious, eternal life at the final resurrection. So receive us, Lord, as we stretch out our hand to you. Take hold of us, O Lord, Lord and our God. Amen.